Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. Happy holidays, everyone. I hope you are having a great end of 2017 and looking forward to early 2018. I am excited for this week's guest because we have a lot to talk about. Um, I'm very excited to have Jane Pong with me from the Financial Times. Jane has done an amazing amount of work, FT, and of course, uh, a number of other places before she was at the FT, which she's going to tell you about. Jane, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy holidays to you. How are things in Hong Kong? Things are great. It's winter and not humid. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. Well, we, we're in D.C. It's still warm here. Like we have had a few days of, of 60 degree Fahrenheit. I know there's a Celsius Fahrenheit thing, but we've had some nice warm weather. So we still haven't hit the cold yet. I have a list of things I want to talk to you about, um, including tile grid maps, because you did this awesome animated GIF a few weeks ago. I want to talk about data visualization in Asia and Hong Kong. But before we get into all of that, maybe you could start by introducing yourself and talk about your background a little bit for folks. Sure. Um, so my name is Jane Pong, and I am a data visualization journalist at the Financial Times based in Hong Kong. Um, before this, I've worked as a graphics editor at the South China Morning Post, which is the main English language newspaper here. And for a while, I was part of the graphics team at Thomson Reuters in Singapore. So like a lot of people, I sort of got into DataViz in a really long roundabout way. Um, I actually have a background in both science and arts, and I was trained in chemistry, linguistics, and psychology. Wow. <laughs> So say that, chemistry, yep. linguistics, mm -hmm. and psychology. So, okay, so how did you go from there to DataViz? Um, yeah, it's, it's quite a funny story. So after graduation, um, I worked as a research assistant at a university back in Australia where I grew up. And the research center that I worked at kind of focused on studying human choice behavior, which is very interesting, and lined up with my psychology background. And there I worked with many brilliant um, econometricians and statisticians, and we tried to model and predict choice behavior in areas like policymaking and marketing. Um, so as I was doing that job, I realized how terrible the charts in the reports were. <laughs> and then so gradually I shifted my role from running the statistical models to kind of communicating the models instead. And yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun um, to be able to communicate academic research yeah. in a way that more people could understand them because the reports looked very boring and uh, just difficult to understand. But they were talking about human choice behaviors and studying how you can influence how people make their choices. Um, mm. So yeah, so I, I was doing that for a little while. And then I decided that I was going to quit my job and pursue DataViz as a career. Yeah. Um, so back then, um, DataViz wasn't really a thing. Um, so I was just reading up on it, classics like, you know, Edward Tufte books and following mm -hmm. flowing data online. Um, and I started mm -hmm. learning coding as well. So I was trying to figure out where to go in this DataViz career. And there weren't any degrees available back then. Um, there weren't any agencies that had data viz as a specialty. Um, mm -hmm. And newsrooms were kind of the, at the forefront in producing great data viz work. Um, so I found my way into a newsroom. 
um, mm. thanks to some very wonderful people who took a chance on this just random person showing up and say, hey, I love database, please give me a job. <laughs> So you went to the newsroom and said, I, I'm interested in, in doing the data viz, but I don't have a journalism background. Yep. You had, I mean, yeah. you certainly had a writing background, but not a journalism background. Yep. That's exactly yeah. what I did. Wow. And I was very, very fortunate um, yeah. that they took me in. And that was at South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Right. So can I just step back one moment? Because, um, you know, as you know, I spent a lot of time working with researchers trying to communicate mm-hmm. their data. So. When you were doing that, did you get a lot of pushback? Were people like, oh. no, no, no. Like, so, and so how did, you, how did you try to try to convince people that there's a better way? Um, just by showing them there was a yeah. better way. Uh, they had really, they had just the default Excel charts um, mm. with 10 million lines. So I was just like, well, which line do you want to actually show? Because you can't see anything from this mess. Right. Um, and then I would just sit down and talk to them um, and be really patient and trying to get to the bottom of what the main message was. And I think the researchers appreciate that a lot as well because there's someone actually trying to understand what they're doing. Right. Um, and then we would together come up with a better solution. Um, mm. And because at the research center, we worked with industry partner as well. So we get a lot of good client feedback in terms mm. of, what makes sense and what didn't, and that helped a lot. And were the researchers trying to publish in both academic journals, but also get the information to a broader audience? And did they did they try to think differently about those different audiences and different outputs? And then um, have you tried to also help them think differently about those? Um, they were mo- mostly focusing on publishing yeah. in academia, but they part of their work is to work with industry partners. Um, so I was the person pushing them to think about communicating to a wider audience um, and people who are not also statisticians and econometricians um, and just trying to say, you know, I understand this model is at 99.89% accuracy, um, yeah. but that's, you know, that's pretty good. Um, that extra 0.1% they're not going to care about. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, So then when you went to the newsroom, did you face some of the same challenges of convincing journalists to think in a visual way or sort of a better visual way? Or were were people already sort of buying into this and it was a concept or an idea that, oh, we can have a person who's dedicated to really doing a lot of this and doing it a lot better? I think I was very, very lucky when I joined the South China Morning Post because there was already some great people working there in terms of database. So Mm -hmm. my ex-boss, some of your listeners might know him. His name is Simon Scar. So -hmm. he was the graphics director at South China Morning Post back then. And he has already established like a kind of culture within the newsroom doing these big print database pieces at the back of the newspaper. And so when I joined, um, people already knew what it was and they've seen a few of those pieces um, published. So they understood what we were trying to do. Um, And that was, that made kind of the process a lot easier. And, but at the same time, because we were publishing kind of a separate feature section, um, there wasn't a lot of overlap 
with the journalists at the paper. Oh, I see. Yeah, because we we did all our own research, um, all our analysis, um, and all the charts and data viz ourselves. Mm. It was sort of all. It was just. It was sort of siloed off in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So then what did the journalists do for their graphics or, or was it really they would write a story, they had some data, they needed a graph with it, they would, they would just send it to you? Yeah, or... it, it worked kind of like a service desk back then. Oh, okay. But there's, um, there's a lot more integration now, I think. Right, right. I mean, it seems that way that it's a lot of the desks all seem mingled together. Now I think even we're seeing the data visualization team getting their names in the bylines of the hmm. of Yep. instead of just, you know, at the very bottom, you know, Bob Smith or Jane Smith made this graph, which is, I think, a, a great evolution. Yeah, um, definitely. So you're at the South China Morning Post. And then from there you go to? Reuters in Singapore. Right. And how was that? Um, it was like the complete opposite of my experience <laughs> at the Post. Um, I think like I would see those two experiences um as kind of like two extremes mm -hmm. because at SCMP, um, the newspaper was, this was back in 2013. Um, mm. So the newspaper was still kind of operating primarily in print and the focus mm. was on meeting like a daily print deadline. But then that was a completely different setup from Reuters, which is a wide news service that runs 24 seven. Mm. Um, so the nature of the work that I did at those two places were like, it's just completely different. Right. Was it organized in a similar way in terms of having the graphics desk siloed off from the rest of the journalists or was it more integrated because it's, it's a wire service and there's just a lot, I don't know if there's a lot more, but it's just, you know, th the nature of what you're producing is different. Yeah. Um, there was a lot more communication between reporters mm. and us because mm. we mm. needed them to do some of the groundwork because we were doing breaking news graphics. Um, so anytime we had someone on the ground, we would talk to them and get information from them as quickly as possible and try and do a graphic as quickly as possible. Right. Like the graphics I made at Reuters were a lot more targeted um, oh. and, and driven by the news cycle. Um, Whereas at the post, it was more kind of exploratory. It was more featurey, um, right. and, and just had, had more kind of details than your average news graphic. Those two jobs, you really had, really it seems like both ends of the spectrum mm -hmm. of the real quick yeah. turnarounds, maybe more standard graphics, and then the stuff where you get to maybe be a little more creative or longer term, dive in a little bit more. Yeah, um, it, I think. It's great to have worked on those yeah. ends, like both ends. Uh, it's kind of helped me a lot in understanding how the news industry works mm -hmm. um, and just to figure out how to make data journalism work in those different settings as well. What would you say to a, a data visualization person coming into the newsroom for the first time? Like, What would be the one thing, the t number one thing you would say for that person to be aware of or to try to do in, in a new job for the first time? I think really talk with your colleagues um, and understand what they do um, and then help them understand how you can collaborate together. Mm -hmm. um, because my specialization is data visualization. 
um, I don't have a beat per se. And when it comes to, especially in Asia, you really kind of need domain knowledge from reporters on the ground um, to to do good journalism. Mm -hmm. So talking to them is essential in figuring out what's a good story in their beat um, Mm -hmm. and where you can find sources of data and how you can make that data be valuable in terms of storytelling. I mean, I think that's the core of what we're seeing in a lot of places is trying to build these teams as opposed to having them siloed off and communicating, you know, it's like inner office envelopes, right? Instead of having these envelopes where we pass them back, we try to get people more integrated together. Um, yeah. And I think we're, the, the bylines reflect that now. Yeah. Yeah. They're getting yeah, I longer. Think that's right. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, they're getting longer, but I think it demonstrates this integration. Um, and it also, I think, demonstrates the value that the newsrooms place on the visualizations. Um, mm. That the visual is as equally important as the reporter doing the interviews and writing the text. Um, Definitely. That they're yeah. both part of this storytelling or this, this communication. Um, okay, so South China Morning Post to Reuters, and then to the Financial Times in Hong Kong. So mm-hmm. you've been at either end prior to the FT. And so now at the FT, where do you place the FT newsroom on the spectrum? It's solidly in the middle as a combination <laughs> of both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm the first graphics person hired in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, so my role is to bring visual storytelling more to Asia. And so, yeah, so part of my role is is to do some graphics to go with stories that on short term and also work on bigger projects in right. the longer term. You now have both the digital and the print, right? Yes. Yes. So, right. so it's literally in the middle. You've, you've hit the whole yeah. range. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about the newsroom there, the size of it, and, and maybe a little nuts and bolts of how it works? So, you know, I have this, this image of the South China Morning Post of literally a graphics desk over on the one side and then, you know, the reporters on the other side. But what... Yeah, I, literally in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> what about at the FT? I mean, I had John Murdoch and Martin on the show a few months ago from the, the UK office of, of the FT, and they seemed like a central part of, of the newsroom there. Um, so is it similar? Is it the same thing in, in Hong Kong? Yeah, um, but on a much smaller scale. So mm-hmm. the Ho- Hong Kong office is the Asia headquarters for the FT. Um, so we have a desk of editors and they would edit stories from all around Asia in the region. And um, it's a very small newsroom. We only have about 15 people in editorial. And I actually sit on the main desk with all the editors. I sit oh, right wow. next to the editors. Um, because it's such a small newsroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm involved in the planning meetings. I'm right there when they talk about the daily stuff. So it's easy for me to kind of be integrated within the workflow yeah. and say, hey, I heard that you were doing, you're planning this story. Have you thought about visual elements to it? Um, there might be some data that we could get. Um, can we ask the reporters whether they have heard anything? or have mm-hmm. any sources that can lead us to good data. And then I would develop graphics in parallel with writing the stories, which works really great and well. Yeah, yeah I mean, it seems like you're able to get in 
at the very beginning of a project, which seems uh, an ideal way to to build out a workflow. Yeah, um, and just by proximity. Yeah. Right. Right. And literally sitting right in the middle <laughs> of the whole. Show. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure you'll be able to answer this question, but I'm curious about whether you've noticed a style to graphics geared towards an Asian audience that might differ from the graphics that are created for, uh, you know, a Western European or an American audience, you know, comparing what the FT graphics desk in the UK does, how that might differ from what you do in the Hong Kong office. Um, I wouldn't say at the FT, I wouldn't say there's a huge difference because, mm-hmm. well, obviously we would have a style guide that we all right. adhere to. Um, and also the majority of our readers would be in Europe or in the US. Oh, right. So Asia is a smaller market mm-hmm. than the rest of the world. Um, so for the FT, I don't think there is much of a difference in the things that I produce and the mm. things that the London team produces. But in living in Asia, um, I've noticed there's definitely a cultural difference in, in terms of how people kind of read or look at database. And most of that is just related to the language because as a language, Chinese characters are lock characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so type things like typography and layouts would be a lot different um, from English. Mm-hmm. And also culturally, I think in Asia, people are more used to having a lot of dense information thrown at them. And so they're very good at separating signal from the noise. Oh, interesting. So in Western audiences, there's this focus on having clean design, um, using color to highlight important points and things like that. In Asia, that's less of a concern, I think. Mm -hmm. In Asia, I think very often the goal is to gain attention. Um, so yeah. it's, it's a lot of colors, it's a lot of noise, it's just things flashing and um, animating and, and using kind of um, motifs and, and icons and um, things like that to, to attract attention. And right. then after that, the information will speak for itself. So it's, yeah, I find it really interesting and it's definitely something that I want to explore. I was born in Hong Kong, but I grew up in Australia, so I can't say that I have a really local knowledge of how it works. Sure. Um, but like me being kind of from the two sides um, allows me to kind of bridge those two ends. Right. And, um, yeah, I hope to kind of think more about it and maybe write some things about it um, as some of our observations. Yeah, no, that, that's super interesting. I mean, do you think it's, is it coming from the, the kanji, the different, the form of the letters, or is it a broader cultural origin to having more dense information? I think it's both. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, the, the living environments are different. Mm-hmm. Um, the lifestyles are different. So I, I think it, it both are factors. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. Well, I want to ask about your tile grid map. 
um, right, little yeah. animated GIF because that was um, that's really what sort of spurred me to get in touch. And I'll post it on the on the show notes. But you you basically collected I don't know probably about a dozen different layouts of U.S. state level tile grid maps to just show how different newsrooms are, are laying them out. So um, so I guess the first question is what spurred you to take that on. Well, um, the idea came to me when I just started noticing the U.S. grid maps popping up a lot yeah. in the last year, just done by different news organizations. And I'm, I'm not very good with U.S. geography. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, I, I just got curious in how the different versions are different. So instead of comparing each of them to the actual thing, I just figured, oh, I'll just compare them with each other. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a very fun exercise to figure out how to make them as well um, mm-hmm. with code mm-hmm. and it allowed me to practice my d3 skills um, so yeah that was part of the reason I made it as well just to code more I mean it, it's really interesting whenever I talk about them I always point out that South Carolina is not to the east of North Carolina um, in DC <laughs> yeah. we're not re- we're not even close to South Carolina but you know on a lot of these maps that they end up I mean, do you use tile grid maps for the Asian market? I mean, I I tried creating this world tile grid map and doing Asia was incredibly difficult. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's, it is quite a challenge. Um, I, I really like the world grid map, by the way. Oh, okay. um, what a feat <laughs> to put all the country. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, especially for something like Russia is the one that I always point to. Like, you know, yeah. Come on, you, you know, it was sort of comical to try to put Russia into the same square size as, you know. Fiji. Yeah, exactly. It's Fiji, right? And then you have countries in Asia like Vietnam is super skinny and long and to try to figure out where to place that. So I can imagine where may not be as useful, but I'm wondering if you've ever tried and, and thought about trying to pull one together for, for that market. I actually tried one for the provinces in China. Oh, Okay. Um, and it has not worked very well. <laughs> um, I think the main challenge with tile grid maps is trying to kind of preserve the outline of the country, mm-hmm. but maintaining kind of accurate accurate positions of the individual states relative to each other. Right. So something is north of something else, but then the whole shape kind of just falls apart, right? Right, right. So that was the problem with China. So China has this shape that kind of looks like a rooster. And it has like a huge area with Tibet and Xinjiang and Mm -hmm. very small areas like Beijing and Shanghai. They're trying to preserve kind of relative positions while maintaining that outline of a rooster was just impossible. So I, I pretty much gave up. But there is a gist on GitHub that I've put online. So if anyone wants to take a look and give me feedback, that would be great. Yeah, that's great. I'll um, I'll look to that too. I mean, does China have the same or similar population density issues that that the U? I, I'm guessing it does because of the the eastern part of the country. But yeah, uh, so the coastal states are very heavily populated, right? Whereas like Tibet um, has a huge area, but very few people and mm-hmm. very small economy. Mm-hmm. So that makes kind of corrupless um, uh, sometimes a problem. Right. Um, but then it, I think uh, it really, how well it works, at least for China, I think it depends on what your 
trying to like what the variable you're trying to show. Sure. Right. Um, I think it, it probably works best for illustrating data where the important point is the number of regions meeting some kind of criteria. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you want to say, you know, 10 out of the 20 provinces have above average something, um, then a grid map is great for showing that. But if it's kind of geographically related, like some kind of commodity or some kind of industry along the coastal states has high output, for example, then the tile grid map doesn't work because it doesn't conserve that kind of outline, right. that coastal outline. Right. Yeah, so it really, I think it works in some cases, but not so well in others. Yeah, just like you said, it's the other fundamental problem is that people, when they see a map of the U.S. or of China, or where they live, they easily recognize their city or their town mm-hmm. or their state. Whereas you manipulate it to create a tile grid map or to create a tilegram or a cartogram or whatever it is, it might be a better way to present data, but suddenly the reader is like, whoa, 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 <laughs> where am I on this? Yeah, map? definitely. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. I'm really excited to have talked to you about this whole spectrum where you've seen both ends and now sitting right in the middle of the data journalism field. Uh, I'm really excited to see all the work that's coming out of the FT office from China and Asia, and I'm going to keep checking in to see how dense the information is. So I'll look forward to hearing more from you about those differences. So Jane, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really interesting. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode. I hope everyone has a happy holidays and I will talk to you soon. This has been the Policy Viz podcast. Thanks so much for listening.